You're listening to Ingenuity, the podcast that dives into the wonderful world of everything industrial. From the birth of the first combustion engine to breakthrough hybrid power technologies, Ingenuity examines just about everything the industry has to offer. The podcast provides a platform for industry leaders, engineers, scientists, and small business owners to educate listeners about past, present, and future industries across the planet. Welcome to uh, Ingenuity Episode 6. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Julie Blumeiter. She's the co-founder and chief technology officer of Clear Flame Engine Technologies. Um, she's going to be talking to us about some of the very cool new engine technologies that, uh, that Clear Flame is working on. Um, Julie, can you uh, give us a quick introduction to yourself, maybe a little bit about your your background and kind of your your current role at Clearflame? Um, sure. Yeah. So I'm Julie. Um, I grew up in Wisconsin um, through kind of a series of, I guess, sort of happenstance decisions. I ended up becoming, you know, mechanical engineer by training um, in undergrad and then a master's and PhD as well. Um, and coming out of graduate school, founded Clear Flame with one of my classmates at Stanford. Um, and so what we do is um, take diesel engines in the big, heavy industrial, hard to electrify sectors and convert them to run on cleaner fuels. Um, so there's sort of a range of fuels we can use, um, but the goal is really about cleaning up those industries that are heavily reliant on diesel fuel today. And I think, so that kind of jumps right into where I wanted to start was the the main mission is is really about decarbonizing the off-highway industry. And um, the uh, I've listened to a lot of your guys' presentations um, and the discussion about, you know, why transitional technologies are so important, right? You know, the, you know, a lot of people I think probably say, well, why don't I want to just go full electric and why are we focusing technologies on, on internal combustion engines? But um, can you talk a little bit about why the transitional technologies are so important and how how the time frame of how quickly we transition um, makes an impact on on emissions? Yes, yeah, I can definitely talk about that. I would also probably push back in general on calling something transitional. Um, there are probably um, regions and economies in the world that will still use something rugged and low cost like the IC engine for a very long time and providing sustainable solutions that work in those areas uh, is, is equally critical um, to the places where electrification makes sense today. Um, but, but more broadly, what we're really looking at is doing something about greenhouse gas emissions um, in the near term. Um, it's sort of like paying down a loan that the longer you defer um, doing something about a problem, the faster you're going to have to address it if you were to want to end up at the same end point. Um, and so already um, we're looking at needing to decarbonize very rapidly um, to hit some of the goals that have been articulated um, you know, globally, like the Paris Agreement. Um, and so it's not just about the magnitude of reduction, it's also the timeliness of reduction that matters. Um, so that's why we're, um, that's why we're dr doing something about this now. We also see ourselves as complementary to electrification. Um, so I, I like to imagine a spectrum of easy to hard to electrify applications. And I see um, 
electrification making progress in one direction, and Clearflame and other technologies like ours making progress in the other direction, and squeezing out petroleum in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's a very long way until it's a zero-sum game between us and electrification. And by the time we are battling it out for that middle, you know, that's a world that I want to live in, where, where petroleum will have been eliminated. Yep. So the, um, the, the work that you've been doing on, on your engine technology, um, and we'll, we'll get into the exact technology and how it works and, and, and the internals there in a minute, but the work you've been doing has been mostly around ethanol, right, and running, running, essentially running ethanol in a diesel cycle engine. Um, but you're, I've heard you guys say that you're fuel agnostic essentially, right? So the, can you talk about your choice of ethanol as a fuel to work with in your initial designs and initial iterations of the technology? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, the foundational science was really about getting any fuel to behave as if it were diesel fuel, um, you know, getting it to light off right away. So fuels like ethanol that would normally never work in a diesel cycle or a diesel engine architecture can be made to ignite. Um, the fuels that we used in um, the initial academic work were both methanol with an M and ethanol. Um, and there were some other fuels as well, um, you know, things like ammonia or dimethyl ether, a lot of these small molecule fuels that are likely to be energy carriers in the future um, all work in our strategy. And, and I can elaborate a little bit more when we get into the, the details um, but the, the short version of it is that if you create a hot enough, a hot enough environment, anything will burn. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's how we can talk about being fuel agnostic, is we create the conditions such that any fuel will light off. So, so thinking back to, I mean, the, one of the initial questions that came to my mind is, well, we can already burn ethanol in a spark ignited engine, right? So why, why worry about getting ethanol burning in a diesel cycle style engine but looking back at um at, at curbing the um the co2 curve over the next decades actually efficiency has a huge place to uh, a role to play in that in that transition too and and getting more efficient use of the fuels that we are burning and more efficient use of the power that we're making um and so our in terms of what's the comparison of burning ethanol in a traditional spark ignite engine versus burning ethanol in a um, uh, um, compression ignition cycle. In general, looking you know with a, for the same fuel, using it in the two different engine types, um, going from a compression ignition um, back to a spark ignition, you're looking at about a 15% efficiency penalty. Um, so it's it's not um, lost in the noise when it comes to both the sustainability impacts as well as the fuel cost, you know, to the operator who would be doing that. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge, huge advantage over just burning it in the current, you know, current spark ignite engine. There's, um, um a, I'm, go I'll ahead. elaborate a little bit there as well. Um, in these heavy industrial applications, um, they're all, the engines are also much larger and above a certain bore size, it's more challenging to do a spark ignited strategy. Um, you start to run into things like pre-ignition or knock. Um, and so above, you know, roughly a 15 liter size, for a fuel like ethanol, you wouldn't be able to do uh, a spark ignited strategy very efficiently um, and potentially at all. And that's why um, you know diesel engines scale very well up and down with varying bore size, whereas spark ignited engines tend to be the smaller engines. Right. So that, that's what gives you access to that 
um, largest displacement, kind of heaviest duty part of the market, right? Exactly. Yeah. The, and, yeah. The, and the hardest to electrify applications have those Absolutely. really large bore engines in them. Yep. Yep. Um, so looking looking at the ethanol and where we're at in this country in terms of ethanol production, there's been a, there's a lot of debate over um, how much ethanol that we can supply. And um, I want to talk a little bit about what the what the current ethanol supply looks like. Um, my the the sources I came up with tell us that we're currently producing around 17 billion with a B gallons of ethanol a year in the U.S. That's about equivalent to about 10 billion gallons of diesel energy for energy. Um, and that the, the transportation sector is consuming about 48 billion gallons. So roughly three times as much, well, a little more than that, maybe four to five times as much um, currently consumed in, in diesel fuel as we're able to produce today in terms of ethanol. So um, again, I know that you guys are fuel agnostic. There's other fuels that can be used here. So it's not like you're trying to solve all the world's problems with ethanol, but there seems to be a natural limit on how much um, how much of that market could potentially be converted. Is that is that a concern for you guys, or, or is is starting with ethanol just a natural choice because of the current supply chain, and then you migrate on to different fuel options as necessary? Yeah, so the, the fuel agnostic nature of the technology allows us to choose fuels based on things like their scale, like their cost, or like their carbon intensity, and kind of take a broader survey of fuels than just looking at things like their ignition properties. Um, so the reason we're going to market with ethanol first is because it's the most scaled alternative fuel in the U.S. Yeah. Um, there's three three liquid fuels at scale, diesel, gasoline, and ethanol. They're nationally distributed at all of the fuel terminals, um, which is where the tankers come and pick up the gasoline and kind of do that, you know, quote, last mile to the filling mm -hmm. station. Um, mm -hmm. So it's already well distributed um, nationally. Um, and then its carbon intensity today, the the average carbon intensity of ethanol produced in the U.S. is lower than the carbon intensity of the U.S. electrical grid. Um, and so it's, it's compelling on, um, on its carbon merits. And then, you know, to do something about the climate problem, which is a big problem, you also need scale. You don't just need, you know, a few things that are very low carbon. You need to have low carbon across a huge, um, you know, swath of, um, swath of the industry. Mm -hmm. Um, so even the, you know, the, the roughly 20% we could displace of diesel today, um, is pretty significant. The, uh, ethanol industry right now, we're in an oversupply situation. So they're actually looking for more, um, end uses for it. And so, um, production could roughly double over about the next five to 10 years. Um, there are even some plants that are idle right now. So in terms of production, we're actually in pretty good shape to do a decent um, job at addressing a big part of the diesel problem. Well, and, and talking about complementary technologies, I mean, I imagine that most of the ethanol we make today, I'm guessing here, I haven't researched this, but I'm, I'm guessing most of it's blended with gasoline. Um, I'm sure there's other uses for it, but most of it's blended with gasoline. So as as the you know on highway passenger car market begins to electrify, those are less gasoline gallons blended with ethanol that need to be consumed, right? So is you know being able to reroute that and displace um, what is essentially a dirtier fuel in diesel with those that ethanol production seems like it's a good complement to you know an easier to electrify market displacing a fuel that can be used to to lower overall carbon. It's a hundred percent the right way to think about it. 
Um, we talked to the ethanol industry about, um, you know, how gasoline blending um, is good. It's already having that climate impact, you know, for every gallon of ethanol that we're producing, it's having that impact. Um, but we also talk about evolving that industry and shifting it into the hard to electrify applications. So you're, mm -hmm. you're spot on in the way to think about shifting that resource um, away from light duty and toward heavy duty. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I, I would, I'd like to jump into the technology a little bit. So, um, you know, the, uh, the, the mixed controlled compression ignition cycle was new to me. So if, if you could maybe take a few minutes and give us a, an engine 101 about what, what the MCCI engine is and how that's different from a traditional diesel cycle. Uh, yeah. So the MCCI is, it is the same as the diesel cycle. Um, but uh, we engine nerds always end up coming up with new acronyms to describe <laughs> um, the ways that fuel and air are interacting in a combustion chamber. Um, so essentially what it is, is it's, 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 it's sort of describing a diesel cycle in its purest sense, where you're compressing air only, not an air-fuel mixture, air only, and then injecting fuel into that compressed air and as you're injecting that fuel, it is burning. And that's the mixing controlled, um, the MC, is as that fuel is finding air and it's mixing out, that's the, the rate limiting step for the burn to happen. Okay. And is that what um, distinguishes it from... ignition. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, the ignition still comes from the compression of the, the mixture, yes. right? Uh, yep. Is that what distinguishes it from a from an H, the HCCI engine, the homogenous charge, yes. is that... That you're you're getting exactly. that fuel load at you know top dead center or near top dead center as opposed to being mixed in the cylinder. A hundred percent. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And and once if you have a premixed air and fuel, um, that's where you can end up having challenges around pre ignition or knock um, or untimely ignition or misfire. Um, in my PhD, I focused a lot on trying to do high load HCCI, and it's very challenging to create the right conditions prior to compression in anticipation that the fuel and air will behave the way you want them to once you compress them mm -hmm. it's much easier to create the conditions for auto ignition and then only introduce the fuel when you want it to start burning so do you are you able to avoid some of the um i don't even know what to call them but in the hcci engine you know the next cycle is fairly dependent on the success of the combustion of the previous cycle is that still a problem in the mcci engine or do you avoid those kind of dependencies between between cycles? It's far less dependent in, uh, in an MCCI. Um, HCCI is typically retaining um, some exhaust from the previous cycle um, with adjusted valve timing. Mm -hmm. um, what we're doing and, and what a diesel engine is doing is largely um, expelling the exhaust from the previous cycle. There will always be some degree of trapped residual, um, but it's not um, something that the next cycle's ignition depends upon. Okay, so we're we're using a, essentially a diesel base engine. Um, we're we're changing the fuel that gets injected, but most of the rest of the you know the four cycles are pretty much the same. So, um, what what's the main difference between burning ethanol in that cycle and burning diesel in that cycle, and what what are the requisite changes from the engine side to make that happen? Yeah, the main changes are just making the air that flows into the intake hotter. Um, so when I say hotter, depending on who you're talking to, they have a different, you know, sort of order of magnitude in mind, but it's about 50 or 60 degrees Celsius hotter intake charge flowing into the engine. 
that temperature difference is multiplied during the compression process so that you're about 200 degrees C hotter just before the fuel is injected. That temperature is high enough that a fuel like ethanol, which is hard to auto-ignite, will readily ignite the same way that diesel would um, at that lower, uh, more typical temperature. Okay. So the um, actual like peak combustion chamber temperatures then, how, how does that compare to a diesel engine? Imagine, the imagine peak, it's quite a bit higher. The, the peak temperatures are not much higher. Um, you end up with a little bit of a flatter shape. Um, you are hotter at the start, um, but your peak temperature usually ends up being more a function of how much fuel you're putting in and then what the composition of your intake was, whether it was air or whether you had much EGR, um, basically how dilute you are compared to the amount of energy um, of fuel you're putting in. So okay. our, our, our peak temperatures are slightly higher, but, but it's sort of not, um, not to the degree that you might imagine. Okay, but it, there's still some um, some mitigation strategies required to handle that extra heat, right? I know that you guys have looked at either coatings and or just in different piston designs, right? Um, and, and do you guys, what's your, what's the final state of the technology in in your opinion? Is coatings a long term solution, or is that an easy to easy to start position, and then you know piston design being the long term solution? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so in, in the academic work back at Stanford, we were very much looking at, you know, thicker um, ceramic thermal barrier coatings, um, you know, think back to, you know, adiabatic diesel days um, and a lot of the work done over the last few decades. What we've ended up doing more and more is moving toward less and less insulation, um, which makes things um, like the surface treatments we can put on more durable. Um, and it's much more moved in the direction of thermal protection um, against oxidation rather than specifically um, large amounts of insulation to reduce heat transfer. So we can end up at about parity with heat transfer for diesel while protecting you know, the steel piston um, in the places where it would um, otherwise start to oxidize in a higher temperature environment. Okay, okay. And then... Handling the temperature of that the intake charge, what, what what are you using to elevate the intake charge temperature? Yeah, so the um, compressor uh, portion of the turbocharger is already um, putting out hot compressed air, mm -hmm. and in a normal engine, you would be passing that through a charge air cooler uh, to cool that down before putting it into the engine. We're able to bypass the charger cooler on an adjustable basis to take advantage of that already hot air. Um, so you, you just have a controllable bypass valve to decide how much, mm -hmm. how much bypass you want? Yep. And okay. then the other thing that we've done is um, you can either reduce or eliminate the degree of EGR cooling. So on the, the trucks that we have driving now, there is no EGR cooler. It's just hot exhaust gas recirculating to the intake. Um, and so between the amount of exhaust we have coming around and the degree of bypass on the charge air cooler, we're able to dial in the desired intake conditions around um, different points of the operating map. Okay. I, so I've, I've got to imagine that what, thinking back to when we started implementing cooled EGR, um, that had a pretty substantial increase in the, in the total heat rejection we have to deal with in an application. You know, you're looking at 10 or 12% higher heat rejection just to handle the cooled EGR. So between eliminating EGR coolers and bypassing intercooler air, I mean, are, 
Well, I imagine that should allow installers to shrink cooling packages by a decent margin. I mean, a 10% maybe on that kind of magnitude. Yeah, that's something that we're looking into um, and, you know, speaking with the different equipment manufacturers. It obviously depends on the application. You know, in a yep. on highway truck, you have ram air um, coming over your radiator. In something like a tractor uh, or a piece of construction equipment, those are not, you know, flying down a highway. Um, and so there are different things that I think we can do with those with the vehicle packaging. Yeah, I think I, well, I want to talk about kind of how far down the horsepower scale you guys are looking at, but especially on smaller compact equipment, like fitting cooling packages into that equipment is one of the major installation problems with compact equipment specifically. So that could be, that could be a substantial benefit. Um, in, in, in terms of needing to, to heat up the intake air, um, especially in extreme conditions, diesel engines already have trouble with, you know, cold air and, and cold starting in some cases needing, um, quite a few countermeasures, especially by the time you get to really extreme temperature conditions. Um, what, how critical is the intake temperature during a cold start situation and what kind of, are you guys having to add any additional countermeasures for those types of cold start requirements? Uh, yep. That's a great question. It's uh, you know, if you're using a high temperature to light it off, how do you start it? Right. Um, yeah. So the way that we start our engine is the same way that you start a diesel engine on a cold day. Um, so we, because it's basically just shifting, you know, the temperature regime up, um, you can think about, okay, what would a diesel have to do on, you know, a day that's this much colder than, than what today is. So, um, we can look at things from the cold weather package of, you know, whichever diesel engine we're applying this to. Um, so that could be things like glow plugs. Um, it could be things like intake grid heaters, um, like they have in the, like the Dodge Ram pickup and some of the other, um, like more modern pickup trucks for mm -hmm. cold days. Um, it could be things like block heaters. It really depends on the base engine design, of uh, what you would choose to use, but some other way to introduce some heat. Um, just for those first few cycles until it is um, lit off and the walls are heated up. I will say one thing that is great about ethanol in a cold environment is it doesn't gel. Yeah. Um, so we don't need to heat it up just to get it flowing. Um, we can direct, you know, sort of some of that effort or some of that expense that would otherwise be there for a fuel heater um, toward the starting challenge. I, that brings me to another question, which is the... Um, is there any changes to the fuel required? Or are we talking about just straight, you know, 100% or, or high-grade pump ethanol? Are you are you having to add any um, lubricity enhancers or any other type of treatment to that fuel, or is it just straight ethanol going into the engine? We're using ethanol straight from the ethanol plant. Um, so it's denatured ethanol, or E98. It has a 2% mm -hmm. denaturant in it by law, um, but we're not... Um, using any additives. Um, there are, you know, other um, technologies or attempts to use ethanol that have relied heavily on additives for ignition improver uh, or for lubricity, uh, but we're, in, we're doing the engineering so that we don't have to have a fuel additive because that does affect logistics and it affects cost for the end user. So you need to be fairly specific about what types of pumps and things you're using then so you're not relying on the fuel as a lubricator, I imagine? Correct, yes. Okay. Ethanol yeah. is not a lubricating fuel. It is a solvent. Yep. <laughs> um, so in the, you know, moving to, you know, things like ultra-low sulfur diesel, oil-lubricated pumps had to become a thing um, and were able to 
um, piggyback on some of the innovation that the, the sector already had to do. Yep. And the the other issues around handling ethanol, um, seals and those types of things, are you having to make those types of changes on the fuel system mm-hmm. uh, on the engine? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of have my little material compatibility um, cheat sheet that I use, and I go through the entire fuel wetted chain, you know, make sure both metals and elastomers and any sealing materials are compatible. Um, sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. It just depends um, kind of a roll of the dice based on what was chosen for diesel compatibility. Um, and then, you know, get the right O-ring dash size, swap in something that is compatible, um, and then you're and then you're fine. So I'm, just, I'm thinking through kind of where we're at in the process of converting a traditional diesel, which is um, maybe some type of, of piston coating or, or thermal insulation on the piston, um, a charger cooler, bypass valve, possibly some O-rings or gaskets getting changed. Um, and then, and then is it just electronics after that? Is it just a control strategy or there, is there other hardware required to change the engine over? The one other requirement on the fuel system is that ethanol has a lower volumetric energy density than diesel fuel. So you need need to flow, you need to flow about one and a half times as much fuel, um, to be delivering the same amount of energy. Um, so when you look at, you know, pump capacity, uh, you need to make sure you either had enough um, additional room on the diesel or, or upgrade to a larger pump. Um, and in terms of injectors, um, making sure that you can flow that higher flow rate to get the fuel in so that okay. you're providing the same power. You know, one of the benefits of MCCI is that we can hit the exact same torque curve as diesel, um, and that requires us to be putting the same fuel energy in. So you're, you're in terms of matching fuel economy or performance with diesel, that's on an energy basis, not necessarily a volume basis, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anytime okay. you're comparing different fuels, always use an energy basis. So, you know, a diesel gallon equivalent um, is a good metric there. Okay. All right. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the about after treatment because that's, to be honest, that's been one of the biggest thorns in the side of um, both engineers and users for the last, you know, 10 plus years in on and off highway equipment. Um, the traditional uh, traditional knowledge is that you either have to choose between high NOx or high particulate matter, right? So if you're gonna if you're gonna burn hotter combustion temperatures, you can lower your particulate matter, but you're gonna have to deal with the NOx outside of the cylinder, or you could potentially go the other way, lower your combustion chamber temper, temperature chamber combustion chamber temperatures, um, lower your NOx, but then deal with the the particulate matter outside the cylinder. Um, so. You, you guys have been able to flip the script on that uh, traditional kind of trade-off curve. Can you talk a little bit about why that's the case and, and why your engine doesn't have that same trade-off between temperature, high temperature combustion and NOx generation? Yeah, it's, it's all about the fuel that you use. Um, so starting with a longer chain hydrocarbon molecule like diesel fuel um, or you know, even things like bio or renewable diesel, any of those long molecules will tend to form soot when they're combusted. Um, and that then makes it challenging to deal with any other um, pollutants that are made at the same time because um, they could, you know, trying to drive two things down at once is challenging. Mm-hmm. So smaller molecule fuels like ethanol, like methanol, they don't form soot when they're combusted, even in this mixing controlled manner where there are lean and rich high temperature regions within those plumes. Um, you know, methanol only has one carbon atom in it, uh, so it has no carbon-carbon bonds. Ethanol just has the one, um, and we really don't see much soot formation at all. A lot of that, um, 
was uncovered during the initial work at Stanford. Um, and then we, what we were looking at was, okay, well, you know, if you're a, an engineer calibrating a diesel engine, you know you run into that soot wall in one direction and the NOx wall in the other direction. Or if you look at it in, you know, a temperature versus lambda space, there are these soot and NOx islands. Um, but the positions of those islands are fuel dependent. So going to a fuel that doesn't form soot creates a much larger distance um, to operate in between, and you can drive the NOx down much lower, you know, doing things like EGR, you know, things like injection timing or injection pressure, sort of the typical knobs you'd use in engine tuning. Mm -hmm. uh, you can do that in a direction that would form soot if it were diesel fuel that you were using, um, but that does not form soot in uh, these small molecule cleaner burning fuels. So, so in other words, you can optimize the production for lower NOx without generating extra particulate matter, right? Correct. Um, yes. So what what levels of, of NOx do you end up getting and what kind of after-treatment devices would be necessary? I know you've been working mostly on highway, um, but what, what kind of after-treatment devices are necessary? Are you still sticking with an SCR system or are you able to go with uh, any other kind of passive catalytic system to handle the NOx? Yeah, for, for our initial... Um, offerings will be still we'll still be using SCR for NOx you know the on highway standards are very strict um, we'll either be eliminating um, the DPF now or potentially later depends on um, working together with the EPA to show that we don't need the diesel particulate filter mm -hmm. um, the engine out levels are below the tailpipe standard um, and so it'll be it'll be a matter of going through those those steps actually doing the certification part of the process yeah, the, yeah. the approvals for the retrofit kits. Okay. That, that brings up a good question, something I didn't know. So you're you're planning on offering retrofit kits for existing engines with your technology on it? Yeah. Um, so because the technology integrates so well into the existing engine designs, uh, it, it lends itself to multiple uh, paths to commercialization. Uh, for the on-highway, on what we're doing is offering a retrofit kit for, you know, a certain model year range yep. of um, X-15 engines in, you know, a certain, you know, subset of truck bodies and, um, you know, roughly targeting the intermediate and outside useful life engines. So, you know, a two-year-old engine, um, you know, that was already, you know, lived its life as a diesel, um, we would then be able to do um, essentially a rebuild process on it. Like, it, it very much resembles... The diesel engine rebuild process but you'd be swapping in the clear flame components at that time mm -hmm. uh, and it would roll back out of the garage as uh you know an e98 fueled semi-truck interesting for... so so is that is sorry um <laughs> it's okay <laughs> I, this is this is new information to me so is that is that really the um the business side the commercial strategy then for clear flame is the is the retrofit kits or is it working with deploying your technology on new engines with engine manufacturers or both, I suppose. It, it's both. So um, the the other avenue that we're pursuing is, um, so John Deere is an investor in us, uh, and we're working with them to implement our technology on their 9-liter engine. Um, and so th in that case, um, that would be going the OEM route, um, you know, where an end user would be able to upfront order their tractor, you know, in the ethanol version, um, and there, there are some advantages to doing it that way. Um, you know, first of all, you never had to buy a DPF because you got to use a clean fuel from the start. So there are certain things about, you know, getting to um, remove some of the, the emissions hardware or remove the EGR cooler 
um, you're even better off if you never had to buy it in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, but because we are making a relatively small subset of changes, and because there's such a cost savings of using ethanol fuel over diesel fuel, um, both paths uh, provide compelling economics to the end user. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that, especially for, like you said, that if you can eliminate the DPF, you can eliminate large chunks of technology that you don't have to pay for in the first place. That definitely helps offset the cost of, of deploying an, an alternate fuel out of the gate. Um, I, I also want to ask about what the, you've been working with, I know the X15, the Cummins 15 liter on highway engine, uh, you just mentioned the Deer 9 liter engine. What's the, is, is there a displacement range, a small displacement range in where this technology stops making sense or doesn't become cost competitive? Or, or are you guys looking mostly at that kind of, you know, large-ish six-cylinder displacement range? I think we're focusing on the, we're focusing on the larger long-term, um, mostly because those tend to be the harder to electrify applications. Um, I think... It'll really depend on the partners that we can work with as well as to what our next engine platform that we choose to go to. Um, like I could see us doing something more in a megawatt size next mm -hmm. um, for stationary power generation, which is another area we have a lot of interest in. Um, so I, it all depends. I, I think once you get to smaller bore where spark ignition makes sense or those applications that are easy to electrify, um, I don't think we need um, to really go that direction, uh, we'll stay on the big, you know, heavy industry, hard to electrify side yeah. of things. Yeah, I th it seems to align more with your with your vision. Um, mm -hmm. I just disappointed as a distributor of small diesels too. It'd really, it'd be really I fun to run a you know two cylinder zero point five liter engine on ninety eight percent ethanol. Oh, just, that's really small. Just for kicks. <laughs> I could do that for you. <laughs> Someday I'm going to drive a, a pickup truck powered by one of these, whether I have to just convert a one-off or whether we end up doing something in that medium-duty size. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, we, we talked about this a little bit too, but um, the other the other reasons, or what are the other reasons for for continuing to focus technology development on the internal combustion engine? Um, you you talked about one of them being those being hard to electrify applications, it's hard to swap in a completely different technology. Um, but, you know, on, on highway trucks, for example, you know, there, there are electrification um, technologies being deployed in on highway trucks. But the, um, what are the other reasons why keeping the internal combustion engine, you know, in play is important? Yeah, I think, um, I think it's all about um, not necessarily disrupting an industry, but transforming it. Um, and, and looking at what are the assets we have today and how can we make best use of them in a clean and sustainable future. Um, so when we look at the existing um, like supply chain, um, production capacity, uh, well, manufacturing, that's the word I was looking for. When we look at the existing manufacturing capacity around internal combustion engines, it's incredible. It's something that took, you know, 100 years to build, yep. uh, and we're very good at it. Um, and so making small tweaks that can take advantage of all of that existing, you know, capital investment and infrastructure and know-how um, is a much faster way to have impact than starting from scratch, trying to build up manufacturing capacity for something new. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I think it's important 
to continue to innovate and find ways to put those assets to work um, to achieve the sustainable future. The other reason why it's important is when you look at projections um, for you know penetration of electric or hydrogen in these different applications, they often show the market size as constant and show you what market share these are taking up. But the market and the number of diesel-fueled vehicles and pieces of equipment is increasing faster than the penetration of these technologies. Mm -hmm. So the number of diesel-fueled vehicles is still increasing even if the total share is decreasing. Um, And so the emissions problem is only going to continue to grow unless we can also address that piece that is just so reliant on liquid fuels. Well, the... uh I definitely, I definitely seen those same numbers before too, which is that the the, the overall market is growing faster than you know one percent a year, which is what the penetration numbers are on, in the in the range of. Um, but the thinking about the amount of in field know how, the amount of um, repair expertise, um, just not besides just the manufacturing supply chain to build new engines, but um, you know the 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 maintenance and and service technicians, everything that are trained out there to work on a current internal combustion engine, um, th- there's not a whole lot of new information they need to work on a clear flame version of the X15 or a clear flame version of the of the John Deere nine liter, right? They're the the basic mechanics are all the same. You have an extra control valve and a different fuel source, maybe, but um, you know it would seem that that it'd be really easy to train somebody that already knows what they're doing to handle this technology in an existing platform, right? Yep, 100% correct. Yeah, that existing know-how, that existing knowledge base, you know, part of the cost of adoption of any new technology is also retraining or retooling yep. um, or, or modifying your repair facility to accommodate some new technology. Um, so I think there's a quarter million diesel mechanics in this country. Um, so for all of those mechanics their skill set is immediately transferable. Yeah. We and built our first... That's not enough, by the way. I mean, it's like, <laughs> that's everybody's yeah. problem is hiring enough diesel mechanics. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're doing the same thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, we built our first three, three prototype trucks um, using people who were trained on diesel trucks and diesel engines, and those skills and those tools were transferable. And right now we're building our fourth truck, um, using the channels um, that rebuild diesel engines and diesel trucks today. Okay. Um, so not just the talent, but also the facilities that do rebuilds and refurb are able to be um, leveraged for getting out uh, a cleaner fuel technology. Yeah, you don't really need any special manufacturing technology to, to, to build it, right? Um, I, it takes me in time to the next topic area, which is what are, what are the next steps? I, so I know you've, I know you've got... Um, Sounds like four trucks now launched with with your technology in it. Are those what are those trucks still under your control? Or are they are they in a closely monitored fleet, you know, test fleet, or are they just out in the wild running? Um, and what's kind of the plan for? Um, are are you looking to ramp up the number of, of units out in the fleet, or are you still very much in like a testing and validation mode? Yeah, so we're we're accumulating road miles. Uh, we're having other people drive them um, and figure out. You know what? What about this may not have met your expectations around diesel? Um, you know, we've had drivers already. You know, people who grew up with their families, you know, owning fleets, who have said, "I would not know unless you told me that there was anything other than a diesel engine under the hood." 
Um, you know, it sounds the same. Um, and so our goal is really to be providing that completely transparent experience to the driver that the only time they ever need to, to even notice is when they're choosing the right, you know, fuel spout to fill up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, but we're, yeah, we're, you know, we're accumulating the road miles and finding out um, and proving out that durability right now. That's that's the big task. But we have more fleets lined up to test it than we can accommodate with the <laughs> small number of trucks. So we're also trying to figure out how can we build more trucks and get them out there because um, people are very excited about this. Good. That's an excellent problem to have. <laughs> it is. That's the right problem. Um, it. And I know, so I know that most of your work, at least what's in the field now, has been on the you know class eight on highway truck market. Um, the the investment from Deer, um, I'm assuming, will 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 pivot your attention to the off highway market, at least in part. Um, is how do you see those two markets? I know, I know that the on highway market, in terms of number of engines out there um, and, and amount of fuel consumed, is is substantially larger than the off highway market, but um, what what differences do you see in the off-highway market and how important is that going to be to you and kind of the future development of the clear flame technology? Yeah. Um, so first, I, I need to mention PowerGen is a, is the third um, of the markets that we're focused on. Yep. Um, so stationary generation. But in terms of the, um, the off-road and the ag applications, um, those are the folks that are producing clean fuels today um, and allowing them to run their equipment on a fuel they're already helping to produce that then drives down the carbon intensity of their operations um, is like, there's just like no better story than that. You know, we want the tractors and the combines to be, you know, powered on fuel they're helping produce. We want the grain trucks powered by the fuel they're helping to produce um, and being able to have that virtuous cycle um, is just going to be so important. So yeah. we're, yeah, I mean, our first investors were in Iowa. Um, the ag sector's really been behind us and believed in us before anybody else did. Yeah, if, if you tell them that you want to burn a bunch of ethanol, you'll get support from farmers real fast, you know. <laughs> yeah, and they and they all want their uh, pickup truck to run on it, too. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not alone there. No, and we've we've seen that in in Nebraska. We have a pretty pretty large irrigation market. And so we've, we've seen a lot of penetration of, of ethanol or at least ethanol blends, um, getting, getting used from the irrigation market. Um, but the rest of the off highway market's a little harder, um, you know, for traditional spark ignited engines. So I'm sure those guys would be happy to have an ethanol fueled alternative for the trucks. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I, th- I think getting back to, especially getting back to the fact that you need maybe one and a half times as much ethanol to burn and, and to make the same amount of energy and power out of the diesel engine, um, you know, I, fuel prices are a little bit wonky today, and who knows how long they're going to stay that way. But what what does that mean for for kind of total cost of ownership and cost of operation um, between diesel and, and ethanol in the same engine? That is a great question. the um, The total cost of ownership for something operating on ethanol is significantly lower than the cost of running on diesel today. Um, even though even though you need you know about one point times as much fuel, the fuel is that much cheaper that it more than makes up for its um, volumetric energy density penalty. Um, you know last year, um, before fuel prices went crazy, uh, fleets were already very excited about the economics um, and on a total cost of ownership basis, they'd save about eight cents a mile. Um, running our technology compared to diesel. 
Today, that's more like 40 cents a mile. Wow. Um, so the economics right now, um, for a fuel like ethanol, that's much more price stable than petroleum. Um, the economics are absolutely bonkers. Um, you know, on a diesel gallon equivalent basis, it's $2 cheaper to buy ethanol than to buy diesel. Yeah, that makes um, that makes a return on investment just lightning fast then, I'll bet. Yes, we have yeah. fleets that haul crude oil who are lining up trying to get a hold of this because of what <laughs> it will do to their bottom line. That's a, there's a little bit of irony there, right? Yeah, but they see that they see the value and they see the opportunity um, to be having you know that cost savings on their operation and you know trucking margins are razor thin. Mm-hmm. Um, so so any little bit um, is is terrific. And then when we explain that we'll be helping them meet their sustainability goals, um, you know, that this is lower carbon intensity than grid electricity, um, then they're very excited to be able to go meet their goals while saving money. Um, and there's really no other other package that that's offering that compelling value right now. Yes, yeah, especially if you consider the cost of change too, right? Like we like we talked about that they don't need to they don't need to go invest in totally new tools and totally different technicians and 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 completely revamp their their support architecture either they can pretty much use what they've got in place exactly yeah wonderful well uh julie thank you very much for your time today it's all the questions i have for you at least in any kind of formal capacity um i always ask my guests one fun question at the end of the interview here but um i'm curious to know what your favorite piece of i'll I'll give you either on highway or off highway equipment but what's your favorite application of an internal combustion engine whether it's something that you know does something really interesting looks really cool fun to operate but what what's your what's your favorite use of an internal combustion engine um does it have to be diesel or can it be something else it can be anything i mean like a race car can be sure <laughs> yeah i mean like a like i've a got everything from car. drill rigs to tractors so <laughs> no i like a formula one car or nascar something yeah. like that yeah the, the engineering so in formula cool. one is just insane it's next level yeah yep. yeah very good well thank you very much for your time today julie i appreciate you joining us and i look forward to hopefully meeting you in person one day i hope so too thank you so yeah. much thank you Thanks for listening to Ingenuity. We record and release a new episode every month. Be sure to follow us at Ingenuity Podcast on Instagram for updates about future episodes and industry news.